The other day, one of our uh, daughters uh, called me from uh, college to discuss a book she had read and a paper she had to write. And we chatted about the author, uh, the time period, the story, the characters, and the main themes running throughout the book. And we all remember whether in high school or in college that such topics generally come up in, in any lit course. While Scripture is different from books of literature in the sense that Scripture represents the inspired Word of God in the intersection of the Holy Spirit and human writers in historical time, the Bible, like any book, has a bunch of very key themes that run throughout. And what is interesting about the themes in Scripture is they are as relevant today to us as they were for those who first encountered them long, long ago. Take, for example, the themes of exodus and exile. The Exodus theme starts with God's chosen people being held in a, in a state of slavery and captivity in Egypt. And one day, of course, through God's power, the people are freed, both mentally and physically, from all that was holding them back from being the people God created them to be. And in a sense, to this day, each one of us here experience an Exodus of our own when we are freed from an unhealthy relationship an addiction, a life-depleting perspective, a physical illness, living in danger, life-diminishing habits, a dead end, or simply feeling stuck. An exodus happens anytime we are released from something that denigrates us, inhibits us from living fully, or ways of being that get in our relationship with God. In Scripture, of course, then there is the quite opposite theme of exile, Recall both the people of Israel and Judah were literally taken away from home to a terrible place in which suffering prevailed, hopelessness dominated, options were limited, and despair was the name of the game. And as is the case with the Exodus theme, we too each experience periods of exile in our lives, times in which suffering, hopelessness, limited options, and despair are our companions. And even if our entire lives are not in a state of exile, we can feel exiled in certain aspects of our lives. A key relationship can be a mess, or a big bad deal is happening at work, or we feel trapped and unable to be the person we really want to be. And at times, certain aspects of our world or culture or country can feel like a place of exile, a place in which things are not as God would want them to be. Well, my hunch is that for many of us here today, we experience a mixture of feelings of exodus and exile in our lives. Some things are good, others not quite or not at all. And being in a state of exodus or exile can either be something personal or something that is shared by a vast number of people. And with regard to exile and a sense of exile that is shared by many, here is what one person writes about his feeling of exile as it applied to the entire country he was living in at the time. The following are excerpts from the book of Habakkuk, both from and outside of our specific reading today, from one version of the Bible. Now, just as a very quick aside, as many of you remember, Habakkuk is one of the 12 minor prophets. Minor in the sense that the writing of the 12 minor prophets were very short compared to the major prophets whose writings were long, like Isaiah. But anyway, back to Habakkuk, and here's what Habakkuk says from one version of the Bible. Oh God, how long do I have to cry out for help? Why don't you listen? 
I have to stare trouble in the face day to day. Violence is breaking out all over the place. Law and order are falling to pieces. Justice seems like a joke. Why don't you do something about this, God? Why, God, why are you silent about the state of my country? Well, these words of Habakkuk, who lived 700 years before Jesus was born, were, were, are quite striking. For him, his country, during his life, Judah, was a total mess. Violence was everywhere that broke out in unexpected places. Injustice was rampant. Things were not fair socially or economically. Corruption at political levels was rampant. Massive cultural challenges abounded. And there was a general disregard for God at the time. And Habakkuk railed against God and why God had allowed for his country to become such a mess. Why God had allowed such things to become so terrible. And on top of that, Habakkuk could not understand why God would allow the Babylonian Empire people from whom were completely godless to threaten and destroy Judah. Habakkuk's words are words of what exile feels like. Here's what the writer Eugene Peterson has to say about Habakkuk. He writes, living by faith is a bewildering venture. We rarely know what's coming next and not many things turn out the way we anticipate. It is natural to assume that since I am God's beloved, I will get favorable treatment from God. It is not unreasonable to expect from the time I became God's follower, I will be exempt from dead ends, muddy detours, and cruel treatment from the travelers I meet daily who are walking in the other direction. That God followers don't get preferential treatment in life always comes as a surprise. But there are few men and women in the Bible who show up alongside of us in such moments. Habakkuk is one of them. Said another way, Habakkuk understands what exile feels like. Habakkuk understands what we sometimes feel like. He knows firsthand what can happen when life does not feel fair and God seems absent. He gets despair, hopelessness, and confusion. Disappointment is not foreign to him. And like many of us, he has lots of questions for God. Habakkuk reminds us that all people of faith endure periods of exile. I want to point out, however, that exile is not an all-or-nothing deal for us in this day. We may not feel like we are completely in a state of exile, but we can feel exiled with regard to someone, something, or some specific situation in life that is important to us. Said another way, we all have you-know-what to deal with, even if other aspects of our life are good. And given this is the case, for those of us who experienced exile or who have a particular place of exile we are dealing with, at the end of our reading today, Habakkuk reminds us of something vitally important. Here is what Habakkuk says from a bunch of different versions of the Bible. I'm going to read chapter 2, verse 4, as it reads in different versions of the Bible. Here's what we find. But a person steadily believing is fully alive, really alive. The righteous live by their faith. The righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. The righteous will live because they are faithful to God. 
The righteous person trusts in God and lives. The righteous will live by trust. These are all different but similar ways of saying the same thing. Habakkuk, in the midst of his exile, in the midst of the exile of his country, says that no matter what comes our way, trust God. Trust God and go about living life. Trust God by living how God wants us to live. Live as if God is trustworthy because God is trustworthy. We are free to live because we can trust God. Being alive, really alive, is all about trust and faith in God. So here Habakkuk, living when his entire country is going down the tubes and is going to be invaded and destroyed and exiled, says, trust God. Habakkuk does not provide easy answers to tough questions. He does not give us flippant advice or offer platitudes as to why things are such a mess. Rather, Habakkuk says what every other giant of faith has said. When things are tough, grit your teeth and trust. Jesus basically said this to his closest friends the night before he was crucified. They had no idea what lay ahead. Jesus asked those who loved him to trust God, despite the fact that Jesus knew that very difficult, trying, turbulent times were ahead for those he was saying to trust God. And Jesus' point, Habakkuk's point, is the same point so many others made in Scripture, like Paul, Isaiah, Peter, Esther, Hannah, Ruth, Mary, and countless others. Each of them said, trust God, before the issue is resolved, not after. Trust God in the midst of whatever exile you're dealing with, not after the exile has ended. Trust God before the exodus has happened, before we are freed from whatever it is that is going on. They all say, grit your teeth and trust. Hard? Raise your hand if you think it's hard. Brutally difficult sometimes. Yet every single giant of faith, whether in Scripture or outside of Scripture in history, says, trust God. A couple of weeks ago, the Aspen School District had a fall break period of a couple of days. My wife, Regina, our son Peter, and I headed to Grand Junction as so many people in the valley do to get some sun and warmth, as it had been so cold. We decided to spend some time at the Colorado National Monument. If you've not been, go. It is spectacular. It's a national treasure. The plateaus, the monoliths, the cliffs, the red rock are striking and awe-inspiring. Regina arranged well ahead of time for us to meet a guide one morning. And I was game and not too apprehensive, even though the guide we were meeting was a rock climbing guide. Our guide was not so sure to make of me when I told him after meeting him that the last time, by the way, I was on the cliff, helicopters and a dozen or so mountain rescue members got involved. <laughs> but I told him that that was then and this is now. So after hiking for 30 minutes or so up a canyon into the National Monument with backpacks filled with equipment, much of which I hadn't seen before, our guide said, we're here. 
And I looked up at the surrounding sandstone cliffs and I asked, where is here? And he said, up. Here you mean pointing toward the sky? Yes, and above us was at least a 100-foot cliff of, flat, of a flat wall pictured on the front of your bulletin today. Well, after some more hiking around the other side of that cliff to set up anchor points, we received instructions and put on harnesses and helmets, and our son Peter went first. And given that he had done this on week-long outdoor ed trips with the school, he made scrambling up the cliff on ropes look easy, and so did Regina. But after he and she rappelled down, it was apparently my turn. And after running the rope through the harness tie points and attaching the carabiner to the belay loop, whatever that means, I was ready to go. And I stood at the base of the cliff, and I turned around and asked the guide, where am I supposed to put my hands and feet? Really, I said in response to what he told me. And somehow, someway, I made my way 30 feet or so up the cliff, and all of a sudden I yelled, but there's no place now to put my hands or my feet. And the guide replied, yes, there is. I retorted, but I feel like a hippopotamus ice skating. This is not possible. <laughs> yes, it is, he said. Look for tiny, tiny places to put just one tiny part of your foot and places to pull yourself up just with your fingertips. And somehow, somewhere, I continued, and about halfway up, with very bloody knees, as I was dumb enough to wear shorts, <laughs> the guide yelled out, take a break. Where, I yelled. Right where you are, he yelled back. And I won't repeat what I whispered. <laughs> anyway, I did what I was told. I relaxed and leaned back from the cliff, securely held by the rope. And as I did so, I looked to see where I'd come from, up to see how far I had to go, and all around to take in the view. And I felt very blessed at that moment, and I asked myself, now how many people get to hang on a cliff today? After a few minutes, I continued climbing upward, falling now and then, but quickly caught by the rope, and eventually I made my way to the top, exhaled, and took in the glorious view of the canyon and the ants of Regina, Peter, and the guide below. And so I rappelled down, planting my feet firmly on the ground, and I was met by cheers. Well, I was blown away by something when my feet hit the ground. You see, whether or not you have rock climbed with ropes, I was yet again reminded right then at that moment about what trusting God is all about. Now, I may be carrying this metaphor too far, and it's certainly not my metaphor. It's been shared by many others many times before. But as I sat there looking at that cliff, I thought of all the other cliffs in life. I thought of the fact that we all have cliffs to go up. All of us do. Every single one of us here. They are as varied as there are people, but every one of us has them. Wouldn't it be nice if we just acknowledged that to each other, that we all have cliffs? Just think of how connected we would feel. It can seem impossible for us at times to scale what we have to scale. It can indeed feel that there is absolutely no place to put our hands or our feet, and that there's nothing to grab a hold of. Every one of us here goes through this, or is in it now or has been, or will be. And again, wouldn't it be nice if we just admit this to each other and get over ourselves and just admit the cliffs we're struggling with? 
But in the midst of this reality, you all know and I know we have a guide. We have God, and God is completely trustworthy. Even when it seems impossible, our feelings, our emotions don't determine what God can and cannot do. Neither does what we believe determine what God can and cannot do. And even when it feels that God is nowhere to be found, our feelings about God's absence or presence don't determine God's presence. We've got to grit our teeth and trust God. We've got to find those places to put our hands and our feet, however impossible it may seem, with God's help. And whether or not we realize it or accept it, there are people around us as we make our way, people to encourage us. There are always people around us, even if those we thought we could depend on don't show up. Others will if we reach out. And just as it's important to pause when we're in the middle of a cliff climb to rest and to see where we have been and what is ahead, the same is true of those passages in which we are dealing with mighty challenges. So since that day, I've been thinking about all the cliffs in my life, my nearly 60 years of life, the death of my parents, friends I love died through illness or suicide, illnesses of people I love, Times of incapacity due to serious injury. Children that are struggling mightily with life itself. People I love whose time is limited. Not knowing what the future held with this and that. The cliffs I've been through over decades as a pastor. Cliffs, we all have had them, we all have them, and we will all have them. But Habakkuk's message... Jesus' message, God's message to each of us is precisely the same. Make the decision to trust the guide and climb. Make the decision to move forward even when you feel stuck. Make the decision in the midst of whatever's going on to pause and reflect what and who is around you. Make the decision to emote and rail against God like Habakkuk did if you feel like it. Make the decision to grit your teeth and trust. And one final thing that's so important. Whenever we're not on a cliff, or perhaps even when we are, let us take Habakkuk's message and remind ourselves to take the time to make the intentional effort to reach out in concrete ways to those who are on the ropes. And we know in this valley, don't we, that there are many on the ropes. Let us reach out and encourage them. Applaud every single movement they make. Love them. Grit our teeth and trust God on their behalf. When they're not in a place they can trust God, sometimes it is our turn to trust on somebody's behalf. But regardless, just remember Grit your teeth and trust. I know it's hard. Grit your teeth and trust. Our guide is not going to let us go, regardless of what cliff we're on and attempting to climb. Grit your teeth and trust. Amen. And let us pray and let us... Um, as is our tradition, take a few moments in silent prayer today and spend some time trusting God or turning to God and asking God to help us to trust him.
no matter what. And so let us spend some time in prayer and deal with issues of trust with whatever it is with God.